0: Welcome to the National Council of Supervisors of Mathematics, NCSM, Leadership in Mathematics podcast. NCSM is an organization supporting mathematics education leadership at the school, district, college, university, state, province, and national levels. Its membership constitutes an international force collaborating to achieve excellence in mathematics education. Be sure to visit the NCSM website at ncsmonline.org. Welcome to Episode 8 in the series of podcasts recorded at the NCSM 39th Annual Conference in Atlanta, Georgia, March 19th through 21st, 2007. This episode is titled, If I Were a District Mathematics Supervisor, I Would, and is presented by Iris Weiss. Iris has studied the status of mathematics education and efforts to improve it over several decades. She shares her reflections on where mathematics supervisors should target their efforts in order to promote a coherent effective mathematics program district-wide. Iris is introduced by NCSM treasurer Fran Barry.
1: Good morning everyone. So that was the shortest introduction I have ever had. Okay, we're going to plunge in. So what I'd like you to do is think about your district, and if you're not a district supervisor, then think about a district that you know and love, and ask yourself the following questions. Are teachers, principals, parents, the superintendent, and the school board all in agreement about what mathematics should be taught K-12? And are all students learning that agreed-upon mathematics with no gaps in achievement by gender, race, ethnicity, and or socioeconomic status? If so, feel free to leave now. (laughs) If not, your first priority is to understand your current system. Michael Patton points out that every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. And so if you understand how your system is operating to get the results it now gets you can begin to think about what needs to be different to get different results so i'm going to talk about student opportunity to learn throughout this talk and it depends both on what mathematics is being addressed and how well it is being taught so the ideal of course is that you are teaching important developmentally appropriate mathematics well-articulated k-12 but often the ideal is not the case in our classrooms and so there's ways that you can go about determining what mathematics is actually being taught one first step is to analyze the instructional materials and you could decide to administer a quick survey just asking teachers what they address i'm not going to go ahead in my talk i'm going to hold myself back from saying what i want to say right now but i'll tell you later what i'm going to say or you could do something more extensively, um, and there is something called the Survey of Enacted Curriculum, or you could have teachers fill out logs. So I'm going to tell you about the Survey of Enacted Curriculum just briefly. There are several surveys. One is about instructional practice. One is an administrative survey. But the survey that I'm mentioning is uh, called the Survey of Instructional Content. It's a very detailed survey, and it asks teachers about 103 different mathematics topics, And it asks them for each of those 103 topics, how much time they spend, and then how much emphasis they place in that topic, in the time that they spend on it, on each of a number of uh, cognitive levels, ranging from memorizing facts and definitions to solving non-routine problems and making connections. And I do not recommend, unless you have more patient teachers than most of us have, administering the entire survey of enacted curriculum, but it is a good um, first start if you want to see what mathematics is taught in your district, and what I would recommend, if you wanted to see if teachers within a grade are teaching approximately the same curriculum, you could pick a subset of the topics, and you could table the terminology so the teachers are answering not generically about math topics, but about the math topics in your standards. So once you've done that and figure out what's being taught, now what do you do? Well the first thing you can think about is, are teachers teaching at this, uh, the same, essentially, or is there considerable, considerable variation, either in the topics being taught, the amount of time, or the cognitive levels? And the survey of enacted curriculum research has found incredible variation among teachers within the same school district, using the same materials, in terms of the time on uh, particular topics and um, the emphasis. And you also can see from some uh, variation of the survey of an active curriculum if you have a spiral curriculum or you're going in circles because one definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome and when you think about what we do to our kids in seventh and eighth grade when we teach them arithmetic that they didn't get in the earlier grades and we teach it the same way and we expect somehow that now they're going to get it so okay So that's a way you could get a handle on what mathematics is being taught. The tougher one is getting a handle on how well it is being taught. Again, the ideal is that classroom instruction would be well designed and well implemented so students are able to learn important mathematics. It's important for you as a district supervisor to get a sense of the quality of mathematics instruction and here's where teacher self-report data are not helpful because teachers are doing the very best they can. And no teacher is going to tell you in a survey that they're doing a poor job of implementing, that they don't understand what their students know. All of us are doing the best we can. So I want to give you a sense of the national picture so you can compare what um, might be the case in your district. We did a study a number of years ago called um, Inside the Classroom where we looked at a nationally representative sample of uh, K-12 mathematics and science lessons. Most of my work in evaluation and most of the research that is done in this country is following the money. It's around NSF or Department of Ed supported projects, and you get a very skewed picture of the quality of instruction. And we wanted to look more typically at the, the, the great unwashed out there. And what we judged was that student opportunity to learn seemed likely when lessons had the following characteristics. Now, let me point out that we did not have a student achievement component in our study. So this was expert judgment of student opportunity to learn. I'd love to have an opportunity to follow this up sometime and see if we can validate our measures. We judge students having an opportunity to learn. I see some of you taking notes, which you're welcome to do, but I will post these slides on our website right after the talk so that you can have them, and I'll add the references as well. Student opportunity to learn seemed likely when instruction actually engaged students with the mathematics content, which is different from just engaging students. One of the places where we've gone wrong in mathematics instruction over the last couple of decades is confusing students doing manipulatives and that kind of thing with necessarily actually focusing on the mathematics. Student opportunity to learn seemed likely when teachers were able to create an environment that was conducive to learning, which we described as both respectful and rigorous. There's lots of lessons out there that are respectful, far fewer that are rigorous. Ensured access for all students. We saw some lessons that were, uh, seemed to be doing mathematics that the kids had already mastered, and we saw some lessons that um, just seemed impossible for at least some of the kids in the classroom to access lessons seemed likely to provide student opportunity to learn when the teacher used questioning that seemed to promote monitor and promote understanding and help students make sense of the mathematics content this slide is always interesting i enjoy presenting this this was the relative strength of k-12 mathematics lessons nationally and when you get down to the third bar that says in 56 percent of the lessons teacher provided content information was accurate, people get upset with me and they say, how can you call that a strength when roughly half of the lessons the teacher has inaccurate uh, information? Well, the reason we call it a strength is because of the next slide. So so the strengths here, in case you can't read them, the content in most of the lessons that we observed seemed significant and worthwhile. Teachers are teaching from their state standards. The state standards are often modeled after the NCTM, PSSM, and that all seems to be working pretty well. Um, Teachers are encouraging active participation. All those things are pretty good. But the major weaknesses had to do with lack of sense-making, whether it was the degree of sense-making, time and structure for sense-making, sense-making throughout the lesson, wrap-up at the end, all of those. kinds of pulling together for kids. Teachers seem to assume that when the kids do hands-on investigations, they are discovering the important mathematics, and when the teacher is lecturing, that the kids themselves can separate the big ideas from the supporting detail. Um, Our observers judged that there was inadequate sense-making in most lessons. Instruction in your district may not mirror what I have just presented, especially if you've been working on mathematics education improvement for a long time. Or you may not accept the frame that we used inside the classroom study. You may have a different vision of what constitutes quality instruction. So it's worth getting your own sense of instruction in the district. And parenthetically, we have found that many mathematics supervisors um, do not have a lot of opportunity to visit their classrooms And they tend to um, make judgments on quality instruction based on whether teachers can talk the talk. And while it's pretty clear if a teacher can't talk the talk, he or she is unlikely to be able to walk the walk, the um, reverse does not necessarily happen. We have a number of teachers who are really good at using standards-based words but are having a rougher time in the classroom. And if you don't walk into classrooms, you won't know that. But in any case, once you've discovered what the status is in your district, what needs to be done about it depends not only on the current status, but why. That's why is the, um, how is the system operating? So let me give you some examples. In some cases, state and district standards and assessments are sending mixed messages to teachers. In that case, it's important for you as a district supervisor to help teachers navigate that, to consider what to do um, to have a coherent curriculum, given the conflicts. If instructional materials are not well aligned with state and district standards, you can't throw up your hands, but in addition to helping teachers understand what to do until you can get get better instructional materials, you want to start being proactive and getting a group together to help select the next set of instructional materials. If teachers don't use high-quality materials because they think they're not appropriate for their kids, then you might show them examples where those kinds of materials have been used successfully as a a kind of cure for low expectations. And notice that uh, this one didn't come first. If teachers have insufficient knowledge, whether it's content knowledge or pedagogical content knowledge to teach the curriculum, you might provide professional development to help them increase their knowledge. If I look at district interventions now, I would assume that most district supervisors believe that teacher content knowledge is the primary problem. Is lack of teacher content knowledge a problem? Yes. Based on teacher self-report, as well as other measures. And this is an interesting, this is getting kind of old in the 2000 National Survey. Um, 60% of, in this case, elementary self-contained classroom teachers Said they felt very well qualified to teach mathematics so the glass is half full if you're comparing it to science but it's not it's half empty if you're comparing it to reading and language arts there's other evidence that shows that when teachers are saying they feel very well qualified to teach mathematics it's not our mathematics it's arithmetic that they're talking about and so for example at the middle grades level while 92 percent of teachers said they felt very well qualified to teach computation only 51% said the same for probability and only 20% for statistics. I have never looked at it by teacher age, but I suspect it's a function of how the curriculum has changed since these teachers were in pre service and they never had an opportunity to learn some of the mathematics that we now consider uh, basic. Is lack of teacher knowledge the primary problem? Not in my view. If it were, then what we should do is have research mathematicians go teach in the inner cities. Raise your hand if you think that would be a good solution. Okay, let the record show that Sherry is in favor of that. Okay. (coughs) So what's a district leader to do? In my view, you should recognize that teacher knowledge is part, but only part, of the problem. And you should therefore consider professional development an important part, but only part, of a system for continuous improvement. My colleague, Barbara Miller, who I think I saw in the room, there she is, and I and other colleagues at Horizon and EDC, uh, several years ago, (coughs) excuse me, put together a handbook for enhancing strategic leadership. It was for the NSF Math Science Partnership, but we think it's equally appropriate um, for district supervisors. In fact, one of the issues that I have with a lot of the, the learning that we do from NSF and Department of Ed funded initiatives is that something that you can do when you have a half million dollar grant may or may not help you when you don't have a half million dollar grant. So we've tried to think about what district supervisors can do uh, with the regular operating budget. The framework for strategic leadership that I'd like to spend some time talking with you about has four components designing and implementing interventions, which is what we typically think of when we think of reform. And that's part of the problem, because it's only part of the solution. You also need to garner support from key stakeholders. You need to make sure policies are aligned. Somebody once said that uh, policies was like uh, guilt, the gift that kept on giving, which I kind of like. You also need to think about scaling up your interventions. Um, doing an exquisitely well-designed intervention with the handful of teachers who choose to come to every workshop is not going to wind up with improved mathematics achievement for all of your kids. The way we view strategic leadership is each of those components is necessary, but no one of them is sufficient, and that the components interact um, with one another, and so you can't think about them in isolation. One of the dilemmas of system reform is that you can't do everything at once. You have to start somewhere. But any part you ignore is waiting to come back and bite you afterwards, so it's tough. So there are the components, and um, Barbara likens it to the um, Spinning Plates Act and the Ed Sullivan Show, where you're just, and in fact, there's a competing session right now where they talked about keeping all the balls in the air. Sometimes that's the way we all feel, that we're just running as fast as we can, putting a little spin on something so the plates don't all come crashing down but we don't really have time to think about a better model, would be interlocking gears, where it's all moving together nicely. So let me talk a little bit about some of the components of strategic uh, leadership. First, as I mentioned, you need to understand the priority needs in your context. Second, you need to select potentially good interventions, things that we have some reason to believe are effective or at least promising. And then, very importantly, you need to pilot the interventions in your district because people will not be convinced that because it works somewhere else it will work in your district, and they're right not to be convinced. One of the problems with research in our field is that it's very scattered, very piecemeal, and so we may know that DMI works beautifully well when Deborah Shifter and Virginia Bassett will do it, but we may not know if it works as well when someone else does it, or we may know that it works really well. Uh, in some contexts, but we may not know if it works as well in other contexts. So, based on the admittedly sketchy empirical evidence and on the wealth of wisdom of practice, if I were in charge of a district's professional development, I would consider it an ongoing problem, a uh, program. It is a problem, but also a program, <laughs> not a series of discrete events. I would pick the content that I was going to address based both on actual and perceived needs. Teachers are much more likely to want to participate in professional development if they see it focusing on problems of practice as they perceive them. And I would address both the mathematics content and the applications of that content. Um, Too often in the, the mathematics institutes of the previous generation, They focused on content and left the job of applying the content in the classroom to teachers. And that's too big a gap. It's too big a jump. If I were in charge of a district's professional development, I would include both immersion, some kind of uh, week long or or longer, and ongoing conversations around content and practice. One of the things we know um, from psychology is the principle of spaced learning. Teachers, like everybody else, need time to reflect on what they're learning as they're applying it and i would distribute the resources that i had available so i could have a district-wide component a grade level component and a school-based component even though i know that that would mean that i could give less emphasis to any one of them than i wished i would include as part of um, application to classroom practice Discussions of classroom video to develop a language of practice and a shared vision of quality instruction. We assume when we all use the same words that we mean the same things by it. Um, I was evaluating a program once where in the fourth year of a major um, systemic initiative, two people who always used the same words, finished each other's sentences, were in a room when we watched a video of one of their teachers And one of them thought it was terrific, and one of them thought it was dreadful. And these two people were in total shock because they thought they had the same vision. And there is no substitute for ensuring that you have a shared vision that you're working toward. And I would include examination of student work as another way of helping teachers apply to practice, both student work from other classrooms and examination of student work from their own classroom. But in addition to professional development, because professional development is only one of our tools, and it addresses some but not all of our problems. If I were in charge of a district, I would work with the pre-service and lateral entry providers if there was a close-by university or set of universities that fed most of our teachers, because in-service education, professional development is expensive. A colleague of mine once said that we're putting them out, teachers out, in immediate need of a 50,000-mile tune-up, which I kind of like. Professional development is too expensive, resources are too precious to be used for remediation. They need to be used for continuing education. So if we could work with pre-service providers to help ensure that the mathematics content that teachers were addressing in their math courses were aligned with district standards, or state, at least and that teachers were getting the knowledge and skills they need to work with diverse learners. If they come out of pre-service, the better they come out of pre-service, the better off we are. I would work with the university to ensure that student teachers were placed in the right classrooms. That's a very important model. It doesn't cost you a whole lot. This is a freebie. It's not like running an institute. And here's not a freebie. I would. Um, a, even if it meant taking resources away from professional development for um, career teachers, I would put substantial resources in supporting new teachers with reasonable, perhaps reduced classroom loads and mentoring. The um, uh, Richard Ingersoll, at the University of Pennsylvania who studies teacher attrition, talks about how um, we solve it as if it's a supply problem, but it's like we're trying to fill a bucket that has holes and we keep pouring more water in it. I actually like the the image of a revolving door. What happens is our new teachers are coming in. um, They can't adjust to the incredible uh, challenges of the first couple of years of teaching, and they walk on out, and in comes the next generation, and every couple of years we're, um, or I I haven't, I guess it takes about five to 10 years to have a substantially new uh, teaching force. I would also, if I were you, provide print or web-based resources for teachers that help expand the impact of the professional development and provide resources for teachers who choose not to participate in professional development if you can't mandate it, and usually you can't. So I would provide resources that unpack the district standards by grade and course, letting teachers know how far they're supposed to take the kids. I would provide resources that address K-12 articulation, letting teachers know where to stop, where other courses will pick up. I would help teachers understand, I would not assume that if I gave them high-quality instructional materials to work from, that they would understand how the activities in that material, set of materials, were intended to develop student understanding. Um, In the local systemic change initiative that we were um, responsible for evaluating the cross-site evaluation, one of the things that PIs found over and over again is that while it was clear to them how the activities were intended to develop student understanding, the teachers were focusing on the reform aspects of the materials. That was more salient to them, the classroom management aspects of the materials, and needed more guidance in how to develop the mathematics. And I would suggest questions and tasks that would help teachers assess student understanding. Some materials that we have today do that very well, some do it less well. And this is one thing, we talk to teachers about how to understand student thinking, but we put far less emphasis on what they should do now that you know what the kids think. And that is not obvious at all. What I would not do, this gets me in trouble, but I'm gonna say it anyway, I would not, encourage teachers to develop their own instructional materials, nor would I encourage teachers to adapt tasks in their instructional materials, unless I could provide them with intensive, extensive, long-term professional development. People scold me about this. They say, oh, but in my program, where two world-class mathematics educators work with 15 teachers for five years, teachers can do a great job of adapting tasks. And I say, okay, if you give me two world-class mathematics educators for every 15 teachers for five years, I will agree with you. But until that time comes, I wouldn't. And I have a little smidgen of data to share with you of why I believe that. In the LSC, we looked at lesson quality, this was based on observations, as a function of both the materials they were using during the lesson that was observed. And whether or not they had participated in professional development and it was a low threshold in this case 20 hours or more of professional development and you can see here that only 26 percent of the lessons were judged high quality if they weren't using at the time of the observation the district designated materials and they had not participated in at least 20 hours of professional development as you move up on the far right 50% of the lessons where the teachers were both using the district-designated materials and had participated in professional development were judged high quality. This, again, is a half-full, half-empty. Literally, in this case, people say, well, what's the problem? And uh, I'll leave that for another talk where you can find the why, why I think that teachers still with this minimal amount of professional development. But the short answer is I think that it had to do with not fully understanding how to use the materials. Okay. The more the teacher adhered to the design of the materials, the more likely the lesson was to be judged high quality. When teachers used so called exemplary materials but changed them, and they changed them for the right reason, they were trying to adapt them to meet the needs of their particular group of students. But the evidence is that, um, and it shouldn't be a surprise to us, that curriculum development is hard. And teachers have neither the time, or in some cases, the knowledge, to do it. So the bottom line is that while tailoring to the particular context sounds good, it's a romantic notion that isn't supported by the little bits of evidence that we have. Okay, Uh, digression. How much professional development should each teacher have? There's an often cited number of 100 hours of professional development. I have no earthly idea where that comes from. Um, And the interesting thing is when people say 100 hours, they don't specify over what time period, per year, over their lifetime? I have no idea. I am sometimes cited as the source of that number. Mm -mm. Okay, so what we know from lots of evidence is that some teachers participate a great deal in professional development, Others either lack the opportunities or don't avail themselves of the opportunities. Again, 2000 data. This is the percent of math teachers who had had fewer than 16 hours of professional development related to mathematics education over the previous three-year period. Now, we can argue whether 100 is enough or too much or whatever, but I think we would agree that 16 probably isn't enough and one of the problems, of course, we all know, is that elementary teachers, it's not a surprise that so few had a lot of professional development, because they're responsible, responsible for keeping up in reading language arts and science and social studies and all of the rest of it. But even at the high school level, 32 percent of teachers had had fewer than 16 hours, which may be because they all think that their content knowledge is adequate, but I think all of us need continuing education. Districts need to provide incentives to go beyond what we used to call the institute junkies, and it's probably you, (laughs) to achieve a critical mass of teachers. And, and this is where the, doing it with a half a million dollars of federal money doesn't help us a whole lot, one of the biggest mistakes I see out there is people design the most effective professional development they can, but they can't sustain it, or they can't scale it. So I get into arguments all the time with people who say, don't you think one-on-one coaching is helpful to teachers? You bet. But again, we don't have enough coaches, we don't have enough money, we don't have, Diane Breyers points out that we call it coaching, but we really have this personal trainer idea of um, how that's gonna work, and we just don't have the resources to do it. Again, a romantic notion. Okay, garnering support from key stakeholders. When Barbara and I write about it, we talk about you don't have to have support from everybody. You just have to have support from the people for whom, if lacking that support, it would stop any of your work dead in its tracks. That may be parents. It may be the school board. It for sure is principals. I'll get into that in a minute. So you need to determine who are the key stakeholders in your context. Sometimes it's the union. They're different in different districts. And importantly, you need to build support not just for your professional development interventions, but for your vision of quality mathematics instruction. And you need to leverage the support of influential stakeholders. One of the ways you can do that, and I've never quite convinced myself which is the best way to go, whether you want to work with the principals, for example, who are eager to work with you, or whether you want to take the risk of trying to convert your chief critic, because that person, if you can convert them, they have a lot of leverage with um, others. Of course, if you can't convert them, you're dead in your tracks. So that's one I, I don't know how to advise you on. But in the work that we've done, um, program leaders have told us over and over about the importance of principles. I uh, said, one, we realize that the principals are not behind you. If they're not supporting you, then you're not going to get a lot of the teachers out for the professional development of this case. If principals are not behind it, there's little opportunity for change. The bottom line is to engage principals early and often, and a lot of the initiatives that we evaluate say that they knew in their heart of hearts that principals were important, but they didn't attend to it enough. And, by the way, expecting the principals to come to all of your professional development is probably not a great strategy. They don't have the time. You need to have sessions that are specific to their needs. Um, One of my favorite activities, especially with elementary school principals, is to show them videos where the teacher is doing a wonderful job of a strong culture um, and a great job of reading language arts, tying the math with the reading language arts, except the math got lost, and analyzing that and getting principals to understand that it isn't all about reading, that mathematics matters as well, is is a, a high leverage activity. A strategy that I learned from one of the LSC principal investigators was that um, growing your own by recruiting principals, get the mathematics supervisor, getting involved in interviews for prospective principals both sends a message that mathematics is important to the district, and you get to hear what his or her vision is. And so basically, they come in oriented. I never would have thought of that. Good idea. This has also proven very important to a lot of reform initiatives, establishing an alliance with a university mathematician who's well-respected, who, when you go to the school board, it's ho-hum, but if the mathematician stands up and says, you can't take away this support because it's critical for the next generation of blah, 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 they listen. Okay, in this whiz through st- strategic leadership, aligning policies, which is something our community is um, not particularly strong at. We are very good at the technical aspects of reform, uh, designing interventions that help deepen teachers' content knowledge, pedagogical content knowledge. Um, We tend to be babes in the woods when it comes to politics and policy, um, and people run rings around us because of that. So again, you need to identify the most influential policies, not every policy, Districts have lots of policies. There are some that you will only know if you go to the archives and dust off the, um, those you don't need to worry about. But what you need to worry about is the ones that teachers are attending to, and you need to, I mean, this is just common sense, you need to leverage the policies that are helping row in the direction you wanna go, and you need to seek opportunities to align the ones that aren't. So here are some potentially important policies. Curriculum, including instructional materials, criteria, professional development and service education, teacher evaluation if it's high stakes in your district, teacher recruitment and orientation, again just like getting principals who have um, strong orientation in the way you wish they would, student assessments, and then there's student assessments. Fortunately you don't need to start from scratch and looking at the alignment of your curriculum standards and your assessments. There are a number of existing methods that help you analyze uh, whether your standards and assessments are aligned. Um, Nor Webb at the Wisconsin Center for Ed Research. The surveys of enacted curriculum that I told you about can also be used to analyze instructional materials and assessments. Achieve has a process for looking at alignment of standards and assessments. The Council for Basic Education has one. You need to find one that meets your purposes and um, use it. Okay. when we only think about providing PD to the few teachers that most want it we don't concentrate on what is the Achilles heel of most of our programs and that is scaling up the intervention you need to develop the human resources you need to develop the infrastructure and you need to create a system for maintaining quality if you haven't listened to anything else that I've said so far, start listening to this, because this is the most overlooked uh, aspect of mathematics and every other education improvement. Now, I'm not telling you anything you don't know when I say that you're challenged with having a large enough cadre of well-qualified leaders who can provide professional development and other kinds of support to your teachers. If I were a district supervisor, I would get the teachers in each school to, Left a teacher as a liaison. I wouldn't worry if that teacher had deep mathematics knowledge. Uh, I would worry if they had the same vision that I had. But they would be a conduit between the district and the school, so that the teachers who don't show up in professional development, who have opportunities to reach them. If the district could afford it, I would have a cadre of teacher leaders, teachers on special assignments to work with other teachers. Um, If I were running a district, I would create such a cadre and I would create an evaluation that showed, hopefully, that looked to see if there were um, gains in student achievement, especially in narrowing historic achievement gaps that were attributable to having these teachers on special assignment, because I believe that policymakers would support this if we had evidence that it was getting what, um, what we wish it were getting. Now one of the things that we often overlook, when we pilot interventions, we tend to use the A-team to pilot the interventions. We ourselves deliver the professional development. And then we say to the teacher leaders, now go do what I did. And it's a better strategy, I think, based on my experience, not one bit of empirical evidence, to involve the people that you are trying to prepare. For professional development in an intern like you may have to grit your teeth and watch them do it less well than you would do it and coach them and support them because if you don't prepare a cadre of teacher leaders or other people you're only going to be able to scale up arithmetically and we need to be able to scale up geometrically and one of the things we tend to forget is that like teachers teacher leaders all of us need ongoing opportunities and support for professional growth. The problem that you have and that we saw in the LSC, even with all of the resources they had available, is there is a trade-off, there's a tension. If you take the time and effort it takes to prepare a cadre of teacher leaders to where they can do the job the way you want them to do it, you run out of time and resources to work with all of your teachers. But if you don't take the time to prepare them, they don't do a good job. So this is a tension you have to negotiate. I wish I had an easy answer for you, but ignoring it isn't going to help. So based on previous experience in LSCs and the state systemic initiatives and the urban systemic initiatives and every other initiative I've ever known about, you should expect teacher reluctance to take on teacher leader roles. Uh, Teachers sometimes are reluctant to to be set apart from their peers. can expect that there will be not as many as you wished you had, and you can expect attrition due to burnout and mobility. That's an interesting um, issue. Sometimes the teacher leaders that you prepare become principals, and it's not clear if that's a net gain or a net loss, but it does leave you having to create more teacher leaders, and you should expect that. Um, One of the things we learned in the LSCs is that the the, uh, program leaders didn't think about Attrition. They didn't think about teacher attrition, they didn't think about principal attrition, they didn't think about teacher-leader attrition. It isn't because they were too dumb to know what was going to happen. Their hands were filled trying to deal with just designing the professional development. But, you know, NSF challenged them to reach all of the teachers. Well, you provide professional development, and now 10% of your teachers leave, and in comes this new group. Now what do you do? same thing happens with teacher leaders. As I alluded to, preparing teacher leaders who in that case didn't have the skill, but in this case don't have the time to work with teachers, you would be astonished at the number of programs that prepare teacher leaders who are also classroom teachers and they have no opportunity to work with teachers. They prepare them to coach teachers, but they're teaching their own classroom during the time that they would be coaching teachers. Doesn't work. And quality control, and this is another one that we don't, we cross our fingers. We prepare teacher leaders To do a good job and then we set them off and we don't walk into the workshops or whatever it is they're doing and we cross our fingers we hope that they're doing a good job and um, you need to to support them and part of supporting them is seeing what they're strong at and where they need continuing work now one of the things that I've seen in a lot of the projects that we've evaluated is the power of well-designed professional development materials to help teacher leaders and other novice professional development providers. Again, this kind of scaffolding is the antidote to excessive romantic, you know, that each teacher leader will design their own. This is a dead giveaway. When I ask a a program leader what the roles of teacher leaders are, and they tell me that each teacher leader is going to decide what the roles are based on the needs of the teachers they're working with, they have just essentially told me I don't have a clue. And that puts too much pressure on teacher leaders to figure it out as they're going along. And since teacher needs are um, multifaceted and, in fact, when teachers start in a coaching relationship and get used to it and like it, the needs are endless. Who who of us wouldn't want help in that? Um, You as a district leader need to help define the role. Okay, so well-designed professional development material is good. Being the new kid on the block with every, being the pioneer district supervisor and testing every new set of materials is not a good idea. I um, encourage you to resist that urge. Among other things, what it does is keeps your teacher leaders always in a state of not well-prepared. You've just gotten them where they can use X and in comes Y and even if Y, is better in some way, sometimes you just need to go slowly and allow your teacher leaders to get comfortable with what you are using. So now a brief commercial, which there is actually no commerce associated with this. Um, But there is a project that we worked on called TMAT, which is an online database of reviews of professional development materials, so that if you want to look and see what professional development materials might meet your needs. Uh, it's a quick way to get access to it, and it includes a conceptual framework because we're trying to um, avoid having people going in and looking for materials without thinking about the purpose for which they're choosing materials. And this uh, project actually was funded in 1996, and I just got the last no-cost extension um, I could possibly get, so it's over. But um, The National Science Teachers Association and AMTE are going to take it over and um, sustain it in the future and there is the website too fast sorry I'm gonna post these remember see you know I learned a long time ago to not ask groups like this how many of you have heard of TMAT because I get really depressed if anybody hasn't so I'm not asking don't raise your hand okay so in conclusion coherent system reform doesn't happen by accident district leaders need to foster the development of a shared mission turns out a shared mission the shared part seems more important than what the mission is Um, Paul Hill did some interesting work on this Uh, in urban districts. And it seems to focus, having a shared mission is a way to cut out some of the noise. And so you might, um, it might not be exactly your vision of quality mathematics instruction, but if it's one that your district is ready to buy into, a compromise vision, one that you can all be working toward. Work toward alignment of curriculum instruction and assessment with that vision, which includes ensuring that district policies send consistent messages to teachers about what mathematics should be taught and how. Um, We evaluated a program once where the teachers told us straight out that they really thought that the materials that they were being asked to use and the techniques that they were being asked to use to teach them were the right way to go, but they weren't going to do it because it was not going to show up in scores on the assessments and it would not be in the service of their kids to set them up to do poorly on the assessments. So there is no substitute for looking at the alignment of your policies. Select, prepare, support teacher leaders and other PD providers to help teachers understand the mathematics, big ideas, and how the student activities relate to those ideas. Provide inexpensive, and I use interventions in quotes here, such as educative materials They're both less expensive than professional development, but they also provide a scaffolding for teachers after they leave the professional development. None of us can apply instantaneously everything that we learn. And so having something that reminds us what we heard and gives guidance um, is is very helpful. And then providing incentives for all teachers to engage in long-term efforts to continuously improve their professional practice. And finally, if I were a district supervisor, I would take advantage of opportunities to learn from other district supervisors. I wish I could say, I'd love to be able to say, if I were a district supervisor, I would read all of the research in mathematics education because it would provide me exquisitely detailed um, insights, guidance about what to do in my context. Wish only that it were so. That's not where we are. Barbara Miller and I are working on another project that builds on this handbook of strategic leadership. And we've been um, gathering knowledge, both the research knowledge from the empirical literature and uh, practice-based insights or wisdom of practice. And what we're finding is that there's a lot more helpful guidance in wisdom of practice than there is in the empirical literature. And that the wisdom of practice can serve as hypotheses to be tested in future research, and I wish it would. So, that's it. I thank you, and I have time for just a couple questions. Yes? Um, No, you need my website address. So please don't email me. Uh, I mean, you can email me, but not for slides. It's um, www.horizon, H-O-R-I-Z-O-N, hyphen, research.com com as in mary horizon-research.com i tried to add a slide today on it and it did you know how it does the website in light blue and i'm not the most technologically savvy person and i kept trying to make it dark and it never would questions thank you